Amen. Scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're uh, at the end of our brief series on touchstones of gospel culture. Gospel culture, you'll remember, is the shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. And gospel culture forms as gospel doctrine, the message of God's grace for undeserving sinners, is taken to heart. And we've been emphasizing gospel culture over these last three weeks because the Bible emphasizes gospel culture, even if it doesn't do so in as many words. Wherever people welcome one another, as they've been welcomed by Jesus, which is what Paul commands in Romans chapter 15, you have gospel culture, a culture of welcome, because the saving welcome of Jesus Christ, his grace towards sinners who turn to him, has been taken to heart. Wherever people walk in the light, as he is in the light, as John says in 1 John, wherever people confess their sins to one another, as James says, you have gospel culture. Because gospel doctrine, the truth of God's grace for undeserving sinners, has been taken to heart and is finding expression in the community of God's people. In fact, wherever the one another commands of Scripture are being lived out, Wherever they encourage one another or exhort one another or admonish one another or love one another, wherever those commands are being lived out in the context of a local church, you have gospel culture. So we've been asking over the last few weeks, what are some high-level indicators that gospel culture is in place? What are some, some touchstones, some indicators? What are some beliefs and behaviors that as we cultivate them through our teaching and celebrate them in our life together will serve to deepen and enrich that gospel culture that by God's grace we, we do enjoy to a degree. The first touchstone we looked at two weeks ago, and that touchstone was wholehearted love for Jesus. In a place where gospel doctrine is being taken to heart, there will be a people who are growing in their love for Jesus. A, a church where people are growing in wholehearted love for Jesus will be a people who first and foremost practice repentance as a way of life. 
Right? We practice repentance as a way of life. We know that as we grow as Christians, we're seeing more of the holiness of God. We're seeing more of the depth of our sinfulness. And we're ever remembering and reminding ourselves that the cross of Jesus Christ always and forever bridges the gap. God is so much more holy than we could ever imagine. We are so much more sinful than, than we could ever fathom. And yet God loves us in Christ with a love that we can't imagine. I love Jack Miller's way of saying it. Cheer up. You're more sinful than you could possibly believe. But at the same time, cheer up, because you are more loved in Jesus than you could possibly imagine. Right? And, and the key to being constantly reminded of that reality, that truth of God's love for us in Jesus, is to always be returning to the cross in repentance and faith, that we might know more and more of his love for us. Because we continually sin, we need to continually return to drink more deeply from the well that is the grace of Jesus Christ. People growing in wholehearted love for Jesus will be a people who know that obeying Jesus flows from their abiding in him. Jesus said, love me. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's a command. Love me, Jesus says. In fact, that will be the evidence of the reality of what it means you know, to, to be, for you to be saved is that it's it's borne out in the fruit that looks like wholehearted love for me. And yet Jesus said in John chapter 15, abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You don't need to produce that fruit in your life. You will bear that fruit in your life as you abide in me. So people who are growing in wholehearted love for Jesus know that their doing for Jesus flows out of their being with Jesus. And then finally, a church where people are growing in wholehearted love for Jesus will be a church marked by joy. Marked by joy. Not a, not a fake joy, not a superficial joy, but a deep and abiding and growing joy. Because Jesus said, I want you to have my joy. As you abide in me, I want my joy to be in you so that your joy will be full. And, and in a place where people are growing in their love for Jesus... We're experiencing more of his joy for us, and we want that. We want what Jesus wants for us. We want his joy. The second touchstone we looked at last week, and that's open-hearted love for one another. A church that's growing in open-hearted love for one another will be a people without pretense telling stories of grace. Right? We, unlike Adam and Eve, we, we no longer have any reason to cover up and hide. Jesus sees us as we are, and he called us to be his own. We can be a people without pretense. We know that we are only who we are because of God's grace. There's no need to fake it till we make it. There's no need to put on a show and be hypocritical. We can just be real. And we can be real with our stories of grace. We can be redemptively vulnerable concerning what God has done to rescue us from our sin. A church that's growing in open-hearted love for one another will be a church where strugglers are at home. You don't need to walk in this door having it all together. If, if you're walking in this door thinking that you have it all together, then, then you're failing to understand the reality of what Jesus says concerning us and his love for us. A church where gospel culture is growing, a church where people are growing in open-hearted love for one another will be a place where the vulnerable are safe, where the marginalized are seen, where the lonely find a family, and where sinners can come clean again and again and again. 
And then finally, a church that's growing in open-hearted love for one another will also be a people whose genuine love for one another proves Jesus is real. In other words, it's not just a talk that we talk, it's a walk that we walk when it comes to how we love one another. Jesus prayed that we would demonstrate such unity and such love for one another that the world would see and believe that Jesus is God's own son. So, wholehearted love for Jesus, open-hearted love for one another, and this morning we come to our third and final touchstone, and that is hope that is anchored in heaven. People among whom gospel culture is growing will evidence and experience themselves and encourage one another in a hope that is anchored in heaven. So to consider that third touchstone, we're going to look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to see two things from it. First, the reality of hope for those anchored in Jesus. And then second, the expression of hope among the people of Jesus. So the reality of hope for those anchored in Jesus and the expression of hope among the people of Jesus. But first, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we do pray that you would be teaching us. Oh Lord, we need to know more of who you are. You've revealed yourself to us in your word. You've given us your spirit that we might grasp more of the reality of who you are. Lord, there's so much that we don't know and so much that we won't know until we're with you face to face. But Lord, whatever you have for us this day, this morning, from this portion of your word, would you make it real to us that we might love you more, love one another more, and bask more in the reality of who you are to us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so first, the reality of hope for those anchored in Jesus. If I had to summarize the message of Hebrews, which, you know, any number of ways you could maybe summarize it, but one way in which you could summarize a theme of Hebrews, it's this, gospel hope for those in danger of losing it. The message of Hebrews, gospel hope for those in danger of losing it. A little bit of historical context. Hebrews was written to Jewish converts to Christianity. So people who had come out of Judaism, had embraced Jesus for their salvation, and now were gathering as a worshiping people of God. They were in Italy, perhaps in Rome. Good reason to think that they may have been in Rome. Hebrews was written uh, between the years AD 64 and 67, as best as can be estimated, and we don't know who wrote it. So anyone who says Hebrews was written by X, you know, take that with a grain of salt, because really nobody knows for sure who wrote Hebrews. But we know to whom it was written, and we know with a lot of accuracy or a lot of, lot of uh, reason to have confidence when it was written. What was happening? What was the occasion? What, what brought about the need for this letter? Well, these people have been experiencing persecution. Perhaps as early as AD 49, under the Roman Emperor Claudius, who had expelled a lot of Jews out of Jerusalem, or, or sorry, Christians out of Jerusalem, Jewish converts to Christianity, because of this figure named Christos, Christ, Greek word for Christ. Certainly under Nero, who was on the throne in the mid 19 the mid 1960s. Yeah. 60s, the mid-60s, Nero was on the throne in Rome. He, Nero, of course, you know, is, is uh, infamously known for actually using uh, Christians whom he had killed to light up the courtyard using their bodies, right? So this is Nero, that Nero. They have been experiencing persecution under Claudius, perhaps, under Nero, certainly, and they were losing hope. 
There is more persecution on the horizon. AD 70, Jerusalem will fall. So that would have implications, ripple effect throughout the region. You know, we read about John in uh, Revelation. We know that Domitian would be on the throne and there would be even a heightened persecution throughout the Roman Empire. So it, it had been happening, it was happening, and it was coming. And they were losing hope. What that looked like in Hebrews was, well, they, they were stopped. They, were, they weren't gathering together anymore, Hebrews chapter 10. They were staying home. Out of discouragement, out of fear perhaps, they just weren't gathering together for worship. Some of them were holding back. They also weren't continuing to grow in their faith. They, they were kind of stagnant. Maybe they had set their Bibles down. They weren't really seeking to grow in, in their life as Christian believers. And they were also turning away. They were turning away from Christianity back into Judaism. So they were kind of, you know, regressing into that because in the Roman Empire at the time, there were all manner of religions that were accepted religions because they could have their own beliefs, but they could also affirm the Roman pantheon of gods. Christianity didn't. Christianity followed a Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they stood out. So people who were Christian were being persecuted, and these Jewish converts to Christianity were being tempted to just go back into the shelter of Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is writing in large part to say, Jesus is better than all of that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Judaism that you're falling back into. Don't go back to that. Keep following Jesus no matter the cost. But they were losing hope. We're tempted to lose hope, right? We're not, we're not experiencing persecution like that. But some of you are experiencing ostracization, marginalization, mockery in your workplace, at school, whether you're an instructor or a student, in your own families, perhaps, and you're tempted to lose hope. Suffering, trials, hardship, sickness, death, all these things can cause us to lose hope. So Hebrews is very much for us. I can't wait till October. I'm starting Hebrews in October. We'll be in it you know, until Jesus comes back, perhaps, or I don't know, some point. We'll be in it for a while. And I, I can't wait to dive into this book together with you. But we get, a little, we get a little taste here in this passage that we're looking at this morning. Because when we lose hope, if, you know, if it's, when we lose hope, we're tempted to either deconstruct or just plain give up. Right? When, when the culture is saying you're absolutely foolish, to believe, for instance, in a God-man, that, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and he died and he rose, and now he's in heaven. He's in, we're, we're tempted to just kind of just deconstruct it, pick away at those little things. And so maybe say, well, that, that's hard to believe. I'm going to turn away from that. that. And then you find yourself at the end with, with no faith, no gospel. Or we're tempted to just give up entirely. Stop reading the Bible because you're not finding any answers. Stop gathering together because everybody just seems to have it together and you know you don't. None of us have it together, okay? Or stop praying because you don't seem to be getting any answers. Tempted to deconstruct, tempted to just give up, but there's a message of hope for us in Hebrews. And again, we get a little glimpse of it here in this passage for this morning. So let's take a look at it. The author of Hebrews is saying that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have a hope that's unshakable. 
If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have a hope that's unshakable. Let's look through it real quick. Verses 13 through 16. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. All right, what's happening there? God promised Abraham offspring, land, and he would be a blessing to the nations. That's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. You read about God's promise to Abraham. God made an oath, right? And then he swore by himself. We might say, so help me God. God said, so help me me. Because there is no one greater for him to invoke than himself. So he promised that he would do that, and then he invoked his own name. Abraham, I said I would bless you. I'm invoking my own name in order to confirm my promise to bless you. Abraham obtained the promise. That's what the text tells us. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it'll say that, that Abraham didn't obtain the promise. So what do we, how do we make sense of that? Well, we know from reading Genesis that there, there was a promise that Abraham didn't obtain, and that was the land promise. And the author of Hebrews says that Abraham, among the others uh, in the Old Testament hall of faith, looked forward to the city that was to come, the city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. Abraham looked forward to that by faith, but he did receive Isaac. That promise came to pass. And so he knew that there would be a seed, an offspring. But then look at verses 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, who in the world is Melchizedek? I'll say a little bit about that. And then, of course, we're going to go more deeply into that in October and moving forward from there. But let's just jump back for a second to the beginning of, of uh, chapter 17 there. What we're being told in this passage is, well, being reminded that we're also heirs of this promise that God made to Abraham. Remember, Paul said in Galatians that all who have faith in Jesus Christ are heirs together. We have Abraham as our father. The promises that are made to Abraham find their fulfillment in Jesus, and all who are united to Jesus by faith are therefore recipients of the promises that God made. And God also invoked his own name in order to keep all of his promises that are found in Jesus Christ, including this promise. And this is where Melchizedek kind of comes in a little bit. This promise to install Jesus as a permanent high priest. Now, if you go back and read Genesis chapter 14, you'll read about this Melchizedek who Abraham met, who is said to be without beginning and without end, which I don't think means that, Jesus, that Melchizedek was eternal, I just think it means we don't know his origin story and we don't know when he died. But it's a type of, it's a way of pointing to Jesus, who is himself without beginning or end, who is eternal. So Melchizedek stands in as someone pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the eternal and permanent high priest. And God made a promise concerning his son being installed forever as a high priest. Psalm 110, go back and read Psalm 110, verse 4. 
And you'll see a promise that God is making there. Like his promise that there would be an offspring of Abraham. And all the promises that were made to Abraham would be ours. So too, there would be this permanent high priest. This Jesus. This son of God. Who would be our high priest eternally. Now, that's the theology. Let's bring it down to real life. What does that mean for us? If Jesus is, has gone before, the, is now present before, the, before God, like, you know, he's, he's passed through the, the curtain, the veil. He's, he's with God face to face, as it were. And if, if he is our high priest, then he's functioning in all the same ways that the high priests functioned in the day of old and the day of Israel, but perfectly, completely. So the high priest in Judaism would offer a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. The high priest in Judaism would make intercession. Jesus continually makes intercession. I love the song that we sang um, earlier before the throne of God above. This, This God who is pleased to look on Jesus and pardon me. That's God's justice, that he, would, that he would look on Jesus, the high priest who's standing before him with wounds still in his hands and feet and side, looking upon those wounds that paid for my sin and forgiving me because the price has been paid. If, if Jesus is your high priest, if your faith is connected to him, if you're tethered to him, you have an unshakable hope. Anchors in the, you know, that were used in the first century in the, in the um, Mediterranean Sea, you know, those anchors would be dropped in order to provide stability in the midst of a storm. Anchors sunk deep into the sea to bring stability when the waves are rocking and the winds are blowing. If, you are, if you're a Christian... If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have a hope that's anchored deep into heaven. In Jesus. Who's before the very throne of God even now. So when the storms come, when the winds are high, when the, when the, when the waves are rollicking and you feel as though you're going to sink, you have a hope that's unshakable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ testifies to this. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're just not sure what it is that Christians believe, maybe you've got, you know, I went to church before, but now I'm not sure what this is all about. Can I encourage you to start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because if Jesus is risen from the dead, that has profound implications for everything. Not just everything else the Bible has to say, but everything else in your life right now. And if that's something that you want to explore, I would love to explore that with you. I'd love to get together, grab some coffee, and talk about this most central and important claim of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ is God's own son. He died on a cross so that sin could be forgiven. He rose from the dead to confirm that everything Jesus taught is true. And he will return one day. Let's get together and talk about that. The consequence of this work that Jesus did, again, is an unshakable hope. That is the reality of hope for those whose faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. But let's move, secondly, then let's wrap up with this. Let's look at the expression of hope among the people of Jesus. What does, people who have that kind of hope, a hope that's tethered to Jesus, Jesus who's before the very presence of God now, so that when the storms blow in our lives, we do not sink. 
people who believe that, who come together in church, what kind of culture does that create? I think it creates three things under this heading of a hope that's anchored in heaven. First, a people who hope alongside one another. We hope alongside one another. We don't hope, in, we don't suffer in isolation. We don't face trials in isolation. We don't, we don't seek restoration in isolation. We do that together, and consequently, we hope alongside one another. We hope with one another. We hope for one another. I, earlier in Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews is saying to these people who are, who are abandoning Christianity, who have put down their Bibles, who are not going to church anymore, Listen to what he says to them. We are confident of greater things concerning you. This is back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. He's hoping for them, with them, alongside them. He hasn't lost. Even as he admonishes them, he's not lost hope. He's hoping alongside them, as it were. Sometimes we're called to hope for people when they've lost hope. I think of that story in Mark chapter 2, where the four men take the, the paralytic who's on the mat, and they carry him to where Jesus is. They go up on the roof. They dig a hole through the roof, and they lower him down to be with Jesus. What an example of people who are in that moment hoping for someone who perhaps has lost all hope. A church a people who recognize that they have an unshakable hope in Jesus Christ, they hope alongside one another. We don't suffer alone, and we hope together. Secondly, a, a church that has a hope that's anchored in Jesus Christ, where that aspect of gospel culture is present and growing, we don't place our hope in the things of this world. We don't, we don't place our hope in the things of this world. We reject the idolatries of the world. We reject the idolatries of the world. We reject the idolatries of politics. Our allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus is the one true king. No party embodies Jesus. His kingdom, his teaching, his will for the earth, no party, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the Independents, not any other one that you see listed on the ballot when you go there in November. No party can claim Jesus. And so we don't let any party claim us. I'm not saying you can't be a registered this or that. I'm not saying that. But our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus. So we can stand outside American politics and offer critique and affirmation in whatever party, wherever it points to the reality of who Jesus is, we can affirm it. Wherever it denies the reality of who Jesus is, we can condemn it, but we stand outside of it as people whose primary allegiance is to Jesus. So we don't put our hope in politics. We don't. Our hope is anchored in heaven, not to ever sitting in the Oval Office, ever. We're not of the world. We don't idolize wealth or fame. We don't idolize sex or beauty or power. We reject the idolatries of the world because we are not of the world. However, we are very much in the world. So even as we reject the idolatries of the world, we identify with the suffering of the world. 
We reject the idolatries of the world. We identify with the suffering of the world because that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't float among the clouds and say, hey, if you put your faith in me up here, he, he became man. We're called to incarnate the Christian faith. The early church, when, when plagues hit Rome, when, when, when there was famine, when there was whatever was happening, when people were dying and the rest of the citizens were fleeing the city, the Christians moved in. They cared for the people that were considered untouchable. The babies that were left on the garbage heap that weren't wanted, the Christians came along and adopted them and cared for them. The church has always been its strongest when it's moved toward need and hasn't run away from it. We're in the world, we're not of the world. We reject the idolatries of the world, but we identify with the suffering of the world. We work for the good of the world. What do you think it means to be salt and light? To be salt and light. Preservation, revelation. Salt preserves that which is in danger of decay. We're called to live in such a way that we preserve that which, is God, which God has declared good, his whole creation. But we also reveal the truth concerning who Jesus is. We work for the good of the world in the same way that God's people who were sent off into exile were called to work for the good of the place in which they lived. We're called to work for the good of the place in which we live. We are a counterculture for the common good. We reject the idolatries of the world. We identify with the suffering of the world. We work for the good of the world because our hope is rooted in that which is eternal. So we hope alongside one another. We don't place our hope in the things of this world. Third, we're ready to share our hope with the world. This is Peter in 1 Peter 3, 15. We are ready to share our hope with the world. Everyone hopes. Everyone hopes. Everyone hopes in something. And, and the rise of anxiety and despair and hopelessness is inevitable whenever people realize whatever they place their hope in is failing. And as Christians whose hope is anchored in heaven, we can come alongside and share the reason for our hope. That's what Peter envisions in 1 Peter chapter 3. You're, you're living in such proximity with those who don't embrace the Christian faith that they look at you and they see your hope and they want to know more about it. So there's the challenge to us. Are we living in proximity with those who don't know Jesus such that they know us well enough to say, tell me about this hope that you have because everything's falling apart around us and everything seems to be falling apart around you and yet there's this unshakable hope. Tell me more. We're ready to share our hope with the world. We don't put our hope in the things of this world. We hope alongside one another. And then fourth and finally, we long to see Jesus face to face. We just cannot wait to see Jesus. Listen, I was raised in a, the age of the church in, in America very early when the idea of going to heaven was floating on clouds and playing a harp, you know, crazy. Where's that in the Bible? It ain't there. There's also the danger of swinging to the other end of the, of the pendulum and saying, you know what? Revelation 21, God is making all things new. There'll be a new heavens, new earth, whatever Eden was, Eden 2.0 is going to be Eden 1.0 on steroids. It's going to be amazing. And that's true also. 
But don't forget that the best thing about heaven is going to be being with Jesus. There will be. It'll be better by far. A people whose hope is anchored in heaven is the people who believe that being with Jesus will be heaven on earth. The earth is being renewed. Jesus is coming back from his own. We will dwell here doing real important things, work that's not toil, relationships unmarked by sin. And yet the best thing about that is that we will see Jesus face to face. And so with those to whom Paul writes, or those about whom Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, people who longed for the return of Jesus Christ, we long for the return of Jesus Christ, either for him to come to us on our dying day and carry us across death's threshold or to come back and make all things new. Either way, that day's coming. And we're a people whose hope is anchored there. Gospel culture. Three touchstones that we can point to, that we can cultivate in our teaching and celebrate in our life together. Wholehearted love for Jesus, open-hearted love for one another, and a hope that's anchored in heaven. Where people are living and inhabiting that kind of reality. Those, those biblical truths are, are rising to the surface such that when people look on us, they see that kind of stuff. We're giving a little picture of the life that is to come. I talked at the beginning of the series about how, by God's grace, we enjoy a, a Letchworth experience of gospel culture. The Grand Canyon of the East. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But if you've never been to the actual Grand Canyon, you don't appreciate how much more beautiful Letchworth could be. We enjoy a Letchworth experience of gospel culture. The Bible holds out in our earthly existence together a Grand Canyon experience. Listen, Life on the new earth with Jesus is going to be so far beyond the Grand Canyon and its beauty, we can't even begin to fathom it. But we get to enjoy it even more than we do now. Let's be a people who are pursuing that with all of our heart, out of love for Jesus, love for one another, with hope anchored in heaven that the world might see and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help in all this. Lord, you've, you invite us to a vision that's so much greater, a vision of reality, a vision concerning who you are, a vision concerning what it will be like to dwell with you on a renewed earth forever. And Lord, we, we, we live with our eyes half closed. We're only ever looking down at the earth. We're, we're so earthbound in our thinking. You call us to do real work because this life matters and you hold out something that's so far beyond our imagining that's meant to inform and inspire and encourage our hope now. So would you, by your spirit, do a work in us so that we are a people who, in fact, are growing in wholehearted love for Jesus. All of our thinking, all of our willing, all of our wanting is centered on you. And then would you, by your grace, help us to be a people whose hearts are open toward one another. And then, Lord, would you let this hope that is ours, that is anchored in Jesus, be something that's lived out more and more in our life together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.